Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we have another round table for you. Unfortunately, Eric Helms could not be here today because um, the time differences are just wacky right now uh, for all of us, but I appreciate that both Menno and Mike Israel can be here. So um, it's gonna be a fantastic episode regardless. Today, we are going to be talking about rest periods, lifting tempo and metabolite work slash pump work. Um, metabolic stress and their application to muscular hypertrophy. So I don't know if uh, Menno, you'd like to start talking about how you'd go about recommending rest periods to people who are seeking hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, first off, Mike, did you get married today? Yeah, it, it, only in the technical legal sense. Yes. I, it's right. not, it's not like a wedding or anything, but yeah, technically I'm no longer, uh, you know what I'm saying? Uh, no, well, I guess it wasn't before, but uh, yeah, officially married. All right, congratulations, man. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right, All right um, on to the topic of uh, the day, uh, rest periods. So um, uh, I, I wrote a review a while back uh, with uh, Brad Schoenfeld on uh, rest periods. And um, um, at that point, I basically challenged the, um, the conventional wisdom, which um, was shared by both exercise scientists and most bros alike, that... Uh, for bodybuilding, short rest periods were ideal. And uh, the consensus was also from both practitioners and researchers, I'd say, that for strength, long rest periods were better. And I basically looked at all the research, and um, I've never really uh, been convinced of the idea that short rest beats, uh, or in general, I'm always skeptical of things that improve strength and then should be not just neutral, but actually negative for muscle growth. So... Uh, in my review of the, li- in the, of the literature, I basically concluded that uh, there was really no evidence, no direct evidence whatsoever to support that short rest, interfer- rest intervals are best for muscle growth. Uh, in fact, on the non-volume equated research, which means how it is in practice, you shorten your rest periods and therefore you cannot manage as many repetitions unless you actively add additional sets, but that's generally not what people do. Actually, at least one I think that found uh, reduced muscle growth. Now, in spite of that, there was still the consensus that short rest was best. So um, that review sparked a lot of follow-up research. And now I think it's quite safe to say that um, rest intervals, they mainly matter because they affect your training volume. And they don't seem to have much of an um, independent effect, which means that generally, if you shorten your rest periods and your volume is not excessive or already very close to the optimal amount, but you're, say, on a low, moderate volume program, if you shorten your rest periods, that reduces how many repetitions you can do, which reduces overall training volume, and more uh, less training volume means less muscle growth. So in practical terms, uh, the answer I'd say is often that shorter rest means less muscle growth. Now, it's also conceivable that if you're doing, and I see this in some of my own clients, if you're doing, you're trying to optimize the volume, so you're pushing your volume way on the uh, end of what you can recover from, MRV as Mike would call it probably, then um, if you then rest excessively long, it might actually cause you to overreach because you're accumulating just too much volume. Um, so that's basically my, uh, um, would be a cliff notes on um, the effect of rest interval on muscle growth. 
Perfect. So it, you basically wouldn't limit rest periods. Uh, would you kind of have an auto-regulation type of system going? So I don't know if breathing was back down, normalized, heart rate was back down a little bit. Is that how you basically go about it? Or do you have general recommendations of a few minutes? Yeah, it depends on the, uh, the volume because multiple setups can work. But I often use auto-regulated rest just because it's such a major pain in the ass to actually monitor your rest intervals. And... Um, so I generally tell people to go by performance, and if time is an issue, then I do restrict the rest periods because it's generally actually more efficient to do more sets and have shorter rest periods than actually try to rest a long period because after you know a minute rest for isolation work and about two minutes for compound work, it takes a long further time before you actually can do a lot more repetitions. And uh, in that time, you could have done a set even not with many reps but you could have still gotten quite a few reps in which would be more time efficient but you can get more volume in given a limited amount of time if you actually do a lot of sets with short rest periods than if you try to do very few sets with very long rest um, so that's actually something that happens quite often because you know not a lot of people cannot train uh, two hours per day or whatever then um, uh, where you have to fit in your training in a lunch break or something then um, then you do have to restrict them and uh, if you do want to auto-regulate them, I often recommend resting until you've caught your breath and you feel that your heart rate is normalized a bit. Perfect. No, I really like that. And um, for Mike, do you have any other thoughts on that? Do you have a similar line of thought or do you have any places where you might see shorter rest periods being efficacious? Yeah, so I agree with pretty much everything Menno said. Can you hear me okay? I feel like I'm speaking quietly. Um, so I think Menno's on the money for pretty much all of that. Um, if, uh, you know, I still think there's some glimmer of hope for metabolite uh, processes. There was a very, very uh, indirect uh, demonstration of uh, lactate, uh, lactic acid's ability to alter growth factors and, uh, you know, very stem cell type of activity uh, recently. Eh, I would, I would, I would say there's a hypothesis generating research, not hypothesis uh, uh, demonstrating research for sure. But um, uh, certainly, you know, in, in any way you slice it, high reps, uh, short rest, uh, and a higher higher failure failure proximity, a la myo rep style. There's definitely something to that that is a way to train, no, no matter the pathways that actually activates. But I think that pre-fatigued state is um, certainly enhances the efficiency of such an operation. So I think at that point. Uh, relatively short rest is a good idea, but that's when you start out with the uh, sort of preconceived plan that this is the kind of training I'm doing. This, these are the kind of adaptations I'm targeting. Um, I think that the idea of just shortening the rest no matter what is really, really bad, but there can be times where you're like, okay, I'm doing short rest on purpose right now because this is what I want to try to accomplish and go after those either metabolite pathways or whatever, the Meyer-Rep style training, then short rest is, I think, critical. Um, but in, in nearly other sort of straight sets conventional approach, um, a longer rest periods are uh, just make more sense. And I will add another way in which they make sense um, that Meno, I'm sure, would have covered eventually. But um, um, in the practical setting, with really, really taxing exercises, your local muscular fatigue is not the only kind of fatigue you experience. I can think of at least three other kinds of fatigue. There is uh, psychological fatigue of like, fuck, <laughs> I almost died. Like a set of 12 in the squat is the religious experience. It takes you time to nut up and do another set. 
Uh, and if someone's like, all right, two minutes is up, and then stopwatch bullshit that I was talking about, which sucks, you're like, wait, what the fuck? Where's my belt? Where's my ego? Where's my life? I don't want to do any more squats. And I mean, it's a serious thing. You've got to get your shit together for a real productive set. Another kind of fatigue is uh, sort of um, synergist uh, or stabilizer muscle or peripheral fatigue. So when you're squatting, you know, your quads might be already recovered, but your lower back might not be recovered yet. And it just needs another minute. Now, if it gets another minute, it's an awesome squat set you got coming up another 12 reps. But if you, you do a minute rest less, it could be like two reps in the squat. And then your lower back starts to be the limiting factor. You get another one and a half reps. You dump the bar and you're like, that was a wasted set. And, and, and Meadow's absolutely right that you can always add sets to get volume equivalency. But then that's a shitty way to go about things. And all of a sudden you would have to do like another, you know, eight and a half reps. Fuck that. Like this is just, if, if I had only rested one more minute, I would just had much more of a quality set. Another concern, again, in those big compound heavy movements is your aerobic limiting factors. I mean, after a good high rep set of leg presses or squats or lunges, you're breathing heavy. It doesn't matter if it's been two minutes already. Your quads are no longer the limiting factor. It's now your lungs and your heart. And you're not there to train your lungs and your heart. You're there to get jacked. So you better have let your aerobic system at least catch up to, like Mano said, your heart rate's relatively normal again, and your breathing is normal. Like if, the worst thing ever is when people overinterpret the literature and have like a two-minute stopwatch, and they're like, all right, two minutes is up, your next squat set. And the guy's like, <laughs> okay, uh, try and put it on your belt. Like, that's just stupid. It leads to really low-quality training. It leads to efficiency drops. And I would say arguably – leads to a much poorer mind-muscle connection, which you've seen as important, at least in, you know, like, there's two ways to squat. There's squatting in whichever way just gets the weight up and hits depth, and there's squatting with a nice upright stance, keeping your heels flat, and really feeling the quads, especially for more advanced lifters. That first way of squatting is just going to get you hurt. And the, and the second way of squatting, the proper way, is just good, high-quality targeted training. You can't do that first way if you're still vomiting fucking blood out of your nose because you didn't rest long enough going for some arbitrary uh, rest time that you've sort of uh, told yourself. So I think that, you know, uh, people like, like I literally have people come up to me and, and my training partner, Charlie, who's an 800 pound squatter. And every now and again, they'll be like, how much, how much rest do you guys take between sets? And we're like, you know, as long as we need to feel like human beings again, so we can do another set. And be like, yeah, I take two minutes. But like two minutes is just long enough for me to stop feeling like I have to throw up from the last set. It just doesn't work. Like now, you know, with curls, with tricep extensions, can you do like the two-minute rest or one-and-a-half-minute time rest? Yeah, sure, whatever. That's fine, right? That's not centrally taxing. But as soon as exercises become centrally taxing, you got at least three other considerations there, including psychological, other muscles, and, uh, uh, you know, basically heart, lungs, cardiovascular. And, and, and boy, oh, boy, you know, that stuff needs to be – because if you don't tend to it – some of those things are in combination will be limiting factors instead of your musculature. And then I'm not really sure what you're training. Can you imagine someone doing like a set of 10 in the bench and then the next set of five and you're like, Oh man, did you really feel it in your chest? Like, no, I just ran out of air. And you're like, huh, I guess just not why we're here. And, and no, it's not right. So, and then people say, well, how much rest do I realistically need? There's a top end to that. You see guys resting so long, you're not there to have the perfect sets. You're there to have good workable sets to really take good chunks of targeted safe training off of your total daily volume goal. If you want the perfect set, then you'll rest like you, there's two there's like two post-activation potentiation peaks. There's one after like a minute or two. There's another one after like eight minutes. Eight minutes is when you're in a powerlifting or weightlifting competition. You don't rest eight minutes between sets unless you're enormous, right? And then all those curves are longer. Then your second peak is like at 20 minutes or something. 
you don't wait for that second peak. You don't want to cool down completely between sets because some people take the rest. Oh, rest intervals don't matter. They post the state on PubMed. Then they're like, yeah, my Shaco routine takes four and a half hours to do per session. What the fuck is wrong with you? Are you dead halfway through? Like, yeah, I just like sometimes I'm on my phone for 15 minutes between sets. Ha ha ha. And you're like, all right, you're just pissing away time. And there's, you know, imagine this. You rest twice as long. The quality of the set is the same, and you manage two more repetitions per set than you otherwise would. Is that worth it? Oh my God, it's not worth it at all. And because the muscle pump and um, the uh, is is literally, you know, the uh, cell swelling is connected to hypertrophy, and at least in some causative way, you're actually missing out on the muscle pump effect and any potential metabolite effect and any potential prefatiguing effect. So you, there is such a thing as resting too long. Um, what that comes down to is for bigger, stronger lifters, three to six minutes is realistic for compound heavy basics. Two to four minutes is realistic for things like maybe uh, dumbbell shoulder presses or pull-ups or things like that. Bicep curls, tricep extensions, like Menno said, whenever you feel pretty good again, you're ready to go and you hit another good set, you're fine. Could be 35 seconds later for calf raises. My calves, I can do calf raises and 15 seconds later, I feel completely fine. There's no lactic acid. There's zero central effects. I go again. It's just it's, it's just a lot of really great time. Forearms, same way. I can do forearms and then I move on. Biceps is a little more. Triceps a little more. Chest a little more, so on and so forth. But basically, when you feel good again and you're not doing metabolite training, that's when you go, but keep yourself in check. Relatively speaking, you want to feel good, not optimal. Because if you're looking to feel optimal, you just need to leave the session after a single set, come back three hours later and hit it again. Then you'll feel real great. Just be wasting your time a lot. I thought that was brilliantly spoken, Mike, because I think there's a lot of practical limitations to kind of trying to give rest periods because there's so many different um, exercises, like you said, like if you're doing a bicep curl versus doing a squat, there's going to require different rest periods. And then the size of the lifter, the strength of the lifter is going to impact it as well. I know when I did one-on-one personal training, you have females and uh, you mm -hmm. think they might need a while to rest between a squat, but they do not. Um, so I think the auto-regulation approach is brilliant, but with that kind of idea in mind that you can rest too long, because I know, and I think people who have done long diets, I know both of you have competed. So, you know, towards that end point, you kind of are resting and almost forgetting that you're in the gym to do work. And uh, that can bite you in the arse sometimes as well, I think. Um, I don't know if Menno, you've got any kind of rebuttal to Mike's points there. Uh, we won't quite talk on metabolic uh, stress yet, but, um, or you can mm -hmm. go the lifting tempo. No, no rebuttal. I, I agree with everything Mike said. Um, I think two interesting things that he touched on um, is uh, there's an, indeed research showing that uh, isometric muscle contractions actually are more fatiguing than dynamic ones, which is contrary to what uh, many people would say. Um, but that might explain why squats and deadlifts, especially if you do them very short rest intervals, um, can, especially in later sets, really start to feel like it's just your back that's limiting performance. Um, so there, extra rest is uh, warranted to make sure that uh, you get you know, decent recovery uh, in, in all the muscles. And uh, second is uh, that, uh, as Mike also said, um, in other words, the, uh, the idea of complete recovery which you see in a lot of exercise science is a joke in practice. So this, this idea that you have studies and they show, okay, complete recovery was seen after two minutes. That might be the case for, you know, some novice level lifters uh, that aren't really training that hard. But in my experience, if you take a set uh, to failure or even like one rep to failure, uh, maybe even two, uh, you might not have full recovery ever that workout. You need to rest literally like an hour or 
something before you actually have full recovery. If you took a set of uh, like a, a 12 RM of squats, like Mike said, and you actually do your 12 RM or your 13 RM maybe, then you're probably not going to be able to hit 12 reps again unless you're a one um, within about an hour for many people. Like some people have good work capacity and they can stay pretty close to it. Some people actually can hit their 12 RM twice, but it's, it's quite rare for many people. Um, it's, it's actually normal for to have quite a lot, uh, quite a big drop. So I think that's also something uh, many people uh, obsess over their work capacity, how many repetitions they lose. And there is an enormous inter individual variability and many things like your training status impacted, type of exercise, gender. So uh, that's something um, uh, I think also a lot of people rest too long because they, they're aiming for that ideal full recovery because they read on PubMed, it takes three minutes for full recovery for compounds work. Um, yeah, it's basically a full recovery is generally something uh, you may not see, like some people see it, but a lot of people don't. So it's not something you should expect or aim for. Like um, so I often tell people like in instruction, when you feel ready to perform well again, rather than actively instructing people are fully recovered because. Okay. <laughs> um, when I squatted a couple years back, I squatted 500 pounds for 10 reps. And that is on YouTube. Um, I, it was probably one rep short of failure. The next set, which was not televised, um, I rested about six to six to ten minutes, and the next set I hit four repetitions. Wow! I was trying. Um, that's, I mean, that was it was a, a real effort. Um, and also, Menno said something. Uh, he said people obsess about getting the same number of reps with each set. Every fucking day on Instagram, like I'll post. Um, I posted my hack squat results. I did hack squat for 17 or 15 reps, 13 reps, 11 reps, nine reps, seven reps. And someone's like, Dr. Mike, why are, why are the reps going down? Um, is it because you're using more weight? I'm like, no. They're like, is it because something's wrong? Like, are you sick? I'm like, well, how the fuck does your training look? Can you really just be I mean, like, what? first of all, why does it matter? And I always ask people, why does it matter? And they're like, well, uh, and then you, you realize that the thing you thought mattered, you have no idea why you thought it mattered. You know what I mean? Like, it, it's just one of those things, like, it just never really is like, okay, how does it affect the total volume load? It doesn't. What else matters for hypertrophy? Not much. Okay. Like, but it's not a set of 10. Like, well, average is 10. Like, okay. People just don't get it. They're just like, oh my God, this is terrible. And they're like, but how do you keep track? I'm like, well, I write down the reps in one week. And then the next week I try to get the same reps or more or use more weight with the same total volume or more. And they're like, huh. Okay, so I think that that obsession with the keeping things the same is is a wild goose chase. It really is because it leads nowhere. It's pointless. You'll have a good day. You'll have a bad day, and it'll just it'll just uh, it's one extra variable that is completely useless to obsess over. Which is one reason why um, I used to consider, you know, I, I want to consider myself optimal and scientific and shit. And I used to kind of get like not jealous, but like be like, man, am I really thinking this through? When I saw people with stopwatches and training uh, monitoring everything. And I was like, oh man, I'm just, uh, I'm just not hardcore enough. And then I gave it a lot more thought. And I was like, those people are sort of superimposing a level of precision that alters their effectiveness into the negative. It's like timing your meals or counting how many breaths you take per day, superfluous, artificial top down sort of constriction that's, that goes nowhere. Yeah. Mike, I think it's also uh, one quick thing. 
Um, you also see it in, in exercise science. I think it's just because a lot of people don't train that hard. So yeah, in, in some papers you see like they did, the subjects perform four sets of eight yes. uh, with their eight RM to failure. To failure, like, how? How, that doesn't work. It's impossible. If you did an eight RM, then there's no way you're gonna get another eight RM. Like there's a few people who can do that, but most can't, and certainly not the average. Menno, I used to actually, uh, I never end up doing this because I didn't want to be a dick. I wanted to write the journal editors for those papers and be like, how did you approve this to be published in your journal? Did any, or did anyone send in a, a request for raw data or a request for clarification of methods? Like, so, so you're saying there's the eight reps to failure, four sets straight, like, mm-hmm, with their eight RM, mm-hmm. Nobody? Yeah. nobody? No, nothing. This doesn't bother anyone. And the funny thing is a lot of the journal reviewers are people who don't train. So they're like, oh, sounds great. <laughs> and you're like, it doesn't sound great. That's why it's really cool uh, having researchers like Brad Schoenfeld publishing data because some of his study designs are a little interesting. And people are like, Brad, why didn't you equate such and such? And he's like, because you can't equate this in the real world. And they're like, well, I would. And it's like, shut up. You don't train. Get out of here. <laughs> okay, fine. Have every set taken a failure and have the same number of reps. Go do it. You know, it, it's just one of those things that's comical. And uh, that, that's when they say, you know, evidence-based practice is really bridging the gap between exercise science and actual practical experience. But this is exactly what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Like if you just read the PubMed stuff, you're like, well, they, every rep to failure, every set to failure, four by eight. And you're like, okay, those are mutually exclusive. You got to pick one of them, man. And my, um, yeah, my only point on that, I was going to say, Mike, is do you have a limit in which you allow a drop off in repetitions? Um, I guess this is related to MRV and kind of performance and what you might expect there. Because I think listeners might be like, well, oh, can I just keep just doing more and more sets and letting the reps drop off because of fatigue? Um, there's going to be a limit to that, isn't there? So um, you have to consider the practicality of if you if volume is your target and you're okay with the intensity dropping based on your training design, what you do is at some point, you know, you do three or four sets. And if your reps go below something that it's just going to take a lot of, of sets of that to take uh, to add up to volume, like five and less, then you just take weight off the bar and start doing sets of 12 or 10 again, and you get to the volume you want faster. Um, in that particular hack squad example, I've never gone lower than seven reps. Um, and when I add a set to that, I could usually do another seven because recovering from seven on relatively light weights, I just take an extra 30 seconds of rest and I can do seven again because it's not too failure, um, right? It's just that when you do 15 reps on the hack squat and you're using like 400 plus pounds, you don't just do 15 reps again. And you can if you want to go to failure, but if you're doing, uh, you know, a short, a short of rest, uh, short of failure, then it's just not practical and you have to let your drops, uh, reps drop off a little bit. So yeah, practically you can eventually let the load go if it's under five or something. But again, look, if you have another five reps left in your total volume target and you have another set, you don't have to just do another set of five. That's it. There's no, set of five is not going to make you – not because you people you say, like, well, that's not in the hypertrophy range. Well, you misunderstood the entire – hypertrophy range is a practicality range. It is not a range of saying if you do three reps, you simply will not gain hypertrophy and you'll just gain power or some shit like that. But that's a whole other topic. Awesome. Um, so I don't know if, Menno, you want to bridge uh, lifting tempo now. Uh, so kind of, yeah, the speed of the cadence of the bar and in different positions, a lot of people have, um, I don't know, super slow training in mind maybe or um, mm -hmm. kind of time under tension, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, one tangent, though, on the previous um, question you asked, which I think is uh, interesting. Um, and that um, is basically what, what you're saying is um, – you're monitoring the repetition drop-off across uh, reps, then you're monitoring work capacity. 
Um, so you can measure that with a, something like a fatigue index. It's basically the percentage drop from set one to the last set if you're using the same weight across all sets. Um, and what it basically means is the amount of neuromuscular fatigue that you have accumulated. Basically, your work capacity, your fatigue should drop off across sets. The amount of neuromuscular fatigue that you have used, like 50% fatigue. And um, it's, it's a useful metric, I find, in that you can use that as a um, gauge to see if someone's volume can go up or down. Because if you see that someone uh, is not acute, well, for one, you can question if they're training hard enough. But uh, secondly, if they are, you can volume because evidently they're not accumulating that much fatigue yet. So they're quite fatigue resistant. And also corresponds with women generally tolerating more volume and also having higher work capacity. Um, and if you see that someone has really, really poor work capacity, um, like I have pretty poor work capacity for uh, quite a lot of exercises and it's not too uncommon for my reps to go like 12, 6, 3. And then it's, it's probably a good idea to, especially with my high frequency kind of training that I often use, probably a good idea to call it quits because you've evidently already accumulated a lot of fatigue. So if anything, you might want to see if you can uh, reduce the volume by a set. Uh, because that last set is only three reps and it's... Uh, quite a lot of additional fatigue. So I, I think uh, using work capacity as a um, sort of, um, as Mike said, hypothesis generating tool in practice for if you can up or decrease uh, the volume. All right, for um, your original question, tempo. Um, tempo is, uh, is an interesting topic in that the research on it is really, really poor. Uh, it's scarce. Uh, overall, what they studied in tempo, like they compare a four-second to a two-second tempo. It's like, what did you manipulate? The concentric, the eccentric? Was there a pause? Which part of the movement was actually uh, manipulated? And often they don't say. Like, so we do have some studies that uh, make it explicit. Then we also have a lot of them manipulate both the concentric and the eccentric. So we don't know what the effect uh, is caused by. Like if there's an improvement in strength, is it because they're doing the concentric faster or the eccentric slower or the other way around? Um, so if you lump everything together, there doesn't appear to be much effect. I think uh, the effect of tempo is a lot like that of your rest interval, that it mainly matters because it affects your training volume. And um, I'm generally inclined to say that uh, an explosive or at least a concentric aimed at maximum performance is the way to go for most people because the thing we have the most consistent data on is that an explosive concentric helps strength development. Yeah, so fast concentric has the most support for strength development. Muscle growth, uh, not so much, but you know, at least if it helps strength and doesn't hurt muscle growth, um, that's a win. And in the long term, more strength may aid muscle growth. So um, for the eccentric, um, I'd say you do want to control it. Like you see some people just dive bomb the weight, like in a squat, for example. And if you're not even resisting the um, the downward uh, phase for at least a free weight exercise, then there isn't any eccentric muscle contraction. And we do know you want an eccentric muscle contraction. So in that sense, you definitely want to at least have control over the weight. Like I often use the cue that you should be able to stop the movement at any point if you wanted to. You don't, you don't do it, but you should be able to. And then if you slow it down even further, there's one study by Pereira et al. that found um, it but it was a trend, not statistical significance, but it was a trend for increased muscle growth. But there are two others that find no effect. So 
I'm not very convinced. Uh, and that one study was one for three seconds in, I think, concentration, no, uh, preacher curls. So one second draw for a preacher curl is, um, that's like one, which is, you know, almost a free fall. So in that sense, I think, again, it's, it's more to do with control and um, um, my muscle connection, if you will, than um, actually the tempo itself. Perfect. So yeah, controlled eccentrics and explosive concentrics uh, for the most part, that sounds about the summary there. Um, Mike, do you have the same opinion on tempo? Mm -hmm. Oh man, everyone was roboted for that one. Um, <laughs> so and yeah, I think Meadows' uh, discussion was very comprehensive. Just to kind of sum up what I'm, I'm relatively sure Meadow would agree with here is because of practical take home. Um, if you would, you don't have to do a fast concentric if you don't want to, especially in some exercises, you might not feel safe doing it. That's okay. As long as it's like moving it, you're know, getting your reps done. I think you're doing well, but ideally I think a fast concentric on a lot of, especially compound movements would probably err on the side of being likely to be more effective, particularly for faster twitch muscle fibers and things like that. And I think that the eccentric can be anywhere from for sure controlled. So, so no, no dive bombing, but anywhere from there to an exaggerated several second long eccentric may have some benefits or just be an interesting variation to use. But if you start getting uh, really funky with like 12 second eccentric or holding at the bottom for a minute straight, you're just pissing away energy where you could be doing more reps. Um, and then, uh, so a pretty convincing uh, summary of, I think Brad summarized the data on super slow training where when you get into four seconds, uh, you're like, man, you get into 10 seconds, it's for sure negative uh, effect on hypertrophy. So it's one of those things where um, if you're doing it to really feel the eccentric contraction and still produce good meaningful work, I think you might be advancing yourself and or just variation. If you start getting fancy, and you kind of know when you're training too, like let's say you normally use 300 pounds for squats and now you're using only 180, but really slow eccentrics. You're like, I know I'm fucking bitching out. Like, that's what I'm doing. I'm just trying not to use heavy weight. And, and, and you, after the workout, you know, someone come, come up to you and be like, do you really feel like you've been really like stimulated? Was it a really hard workout? And you're like, no. Be like, if I told you that you could only do two second eccentrics, would it be harder or easier? It'd be like, for the IR to be RIR to be the same, it would be harder because it'd be more weight. It'd be a bigger pain in the ass. But like, that's probably going to grow you more. You're like, yeah, I need that. I'm just trying to get away. So I think a lot of people who get into the really slow eccentrics, they're actually just trying to avoid the pain and the work it takes to really grow. So I think anywhere between a four second eccentric and a one second eccentric still under control, anything between a, a get it done concentric and a, uh, a, a do it explosively, I think is totally cool. I think Mano and I would both be very hard pressed to offer a very convincing case for anything in that range being just for sure better. Like if someone comes in and if, if Mano and I see someone doing a three second eccentric, uh, neither one of us is going to be like, well, you're really fucking that up because one and a half is what the research says. So uh, I don't know, man. Is that like a decent summary of uh, things? Yeah. Yeah. There's, it's uh, hard to argue that um, a slower eccentric uh, would actually be worse. Yeah. Cool. And actually on a related note, I think uh, maybe some of the listeners are thinking about these other elements of training where we've got maybe the stretch reflex um, being involved, whether because you kind of talked about dive bombing, obviously not being wanted, but maybe a stretch reflex in some areas might be beneficial or not. And maybe using a pause as a variation. Um, should we be using a stretch reflex on things like a, a squat? Is that something that we should be doing? I know, Mike, you've spoken about this before. Do you want to kind of touch on that? So 
uh, I think that the uh, if you're training for pure hypertrophy, uh, I think that eventually uh, the bigger and stronger you get from the trade-off of injury management, you're going to go into the direction of pausing most of your lifts. Um, not all of them. Some are impossible to pause. Some pausing is just a waste of time. Uh, but uh, I think a considerable amount of lifts you, you want to pause, especially lifts like the bench press, uh, sometimes lifts like the squat, maybe the deadlift under some circumstances. Pausing lets you reset. It lets you make every rep the same and lets you avoid really grandiose forces that could actually get you hurt. Like if you're benching over 150 kilos for reps and you're a physique athlete, especially if you're starting a diet and you're getting pretty lean, I don't like to see um, – uh, not paused benches because I've seen too many guys get hurt. Now it's just a part of training. Um, but I, I just think it's, it, it, you have to ask the question of, okay, if you're a track and field athlete and you want reactive strength, should you be pausing? No, uh, your bodybuilder, just move the fucking weight and do it in a very safe way. I think pauses also allow standardization and a bit of safety. How, how insistent am I on the people pause? I think when you're beginning training, when you're still weak or small or, uh, you just haven't had much experience. I don't think pausing is very important because you're just not strong enough to hurt yourself yet. But when I see a guy who's really enormous and really strong, uh, not pausing lifts like bench presses and incline presses, I just feel like, man, you could be getting damn near the same amount of stimulus, a little less arguably because of the lower forces, because most of the high, the highest forces in a lift or like bench press are actually seen uh, in the, uh, the, uh, the transitional phase between concentric and eccentric. But um, you just do two or three more reps per workout and you get the same amount of stimulus because forces is not a limiting factor in hypertrophy. So if you're using sufficiently heavy weights and you pause them, you could just be doing really good technique, having good standardization and just keeping yourself from sort of kind of needless injuries. It's really hard to get hurt when you're pausing your presses and, and pausing your squats. I pause almost all of my squats now, especially the heavy ones, because I'm to a point with my strength and I'm fucking wave my own flag here that I just, I just don't want to risk quad injury for seemingly no outcome at all. And if I was a power lifter, I wouldn't pause everything because you have to do a squat and competition without pausing. So I don't know. Manu, are you of the, the same opinion with kind of pauses being beneficial for maybe more strength when you're a bit stronger and maybe you don't need to pause so much when you're of the weaker side? Mm -hmm. um, first, let me check. Can you guys hear me now? Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I think um, it's definitely true for the... Um, I think for really advanced trainees, it's uh, definitely true. And um, I generally recommend pauses in uh, free cases, so really advanced trainees. And this, this mostly concerns people on gear, though, because that's when you really see strength levels that basically exceed the bodies and the tendons uh, capacity to, uh, to handle them. In uh, the case of um, many natural powerlifters, for example, that are uh, genetically gifted for powerlifting, in my experience, they often also have iron joints. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that's, that's one of the big requirements for being a successful natural powerlifter, uh, to have iron, iron joints. Because uh, for me, for example, I could have the strength, but my joints would never um, tolerate it. Um, so in that scenario, definitely, there's just not much uh, benefit um, and a lot of risk with um, using the stretch reflex. Uh, however, for uh, people that don't have connective tissue issues, the stretch reflex is something that I like to use because it's not just passive. Many people think it's purely elastic energy storage, but it actually potentiates uh, motor output. So it actually increases muscle activation. It's, um, so it's a potentiating effect in, in the brain, basically. 
Uh, and in that respect, increased muscle activation, more work should translate into uh, more growth. Um, for beginners, I also like pauses because it's a great way to learn technique. And um, again, for injury management, injured trainees and stuff, um, I think that this uh, ties into other considerations for tempo than pure muscle growth, uh, which is, can you uh, accurately monitor your progression? Um, does it, uh, do your connective tissues tolerate it? Um, and what was the third one? I think those are some technique. Yeah, technique. So, uh, exactly. So I think that those are the main issues uh, to consider. And overall, it's, it's going to be a very, very small effect. Um, and based on that, I decided for most trainees. Oh, oh yeah, there's another thing, the, the resistance curve of the exercise. So some exercises, if, for example, you would uh, pause in the contracted position of most pulling exercises that will greatly limit how many reps you can do. Like if you're doing a face pull and you're pausing in the contracted position, that is going to cut uh, your repetitions in, in half, basically. So because that is the point in the exercise that is most difficult. Now in a bench press, if you pause on the bottom, the sticking point is actually a bit off the chest. So it doesn't really cost you much uh, strength or in volume. So basically, the more volume it costs you, the greater uh, the loss with the pause. That's the point. Brilliant. Go just another thing on that really quick. Um, I would say that just to add to Meadows, that's absolutely uh, on the money about, uh, you know, the strength curve. There's also another way in which pauses can be bad. It's when your setup is bleeding a lot of energy out of you. So if you're doing um, a chest supported row and you want to pause at the bottom, totally cool because you're just holding on. And if you're strapped in, who cares? If you're doing a bent over row, you don't just pause the bottom because you have to stay erect all the time. You'll just shit out like five reps because you spent time pausing for no fucking reason while energetically very taxing. So like another one is stopping at the bottom of the leg press and at the top of the leg press. Kind of totally cool because you're pretty buckled in. No big deal. You're not going anywhere. Um, stopping for too long at the bottom on top of squats. I mean, you're burdened the entire time. You just There's only so long your spine can stay upright under that much weight. So it's one of those things like you, you got to consider the setup uh, a, lo a lot of times with, with some more restricted setups where your body's being helped pauses are a bit more realistic, even on machines. But sometimes when you have to sort of have your body just constantly using energy, like as soon as you're in the exercise, you got to sort of get so when you're done, you're done um, with pull-ups. Uh, as an interesting example where I think there's that very fine middle line for many people, not all people. Um, if you don't pause at all and you rock it right out of the pull-up, it's pretty dangerous, especially for the distal tricep tendon and things like that. Um, or sort of proximal tricep tendon, the long head. You can have some injury issues there uh, if you just rock it right out of the bottom of every pull-up. Um, uh, shoulder stuff. But if you pause every pull-up, like people will pause and then go, ooh. And then go like that. It's like, it's like you could have done like two reps with all that energy. It also the grabbing your the, the handle, your grip starts to go, all the stuff. Um, so it's one of those like pull ups. I think almost ideally, you know, get to the top and then go down, stretch, and then come back up. Don't piss away too much time down there, and don't come back up too fast. I think a lot of that can work for a lot of exercises. Meno, did you have any uh, comments on that? No, I agree one hundred percent. No, I I think actually speaking to that, I I personally can really, really think 
of that towards the squat kind of when you not dive bombing, but controlling into that hole and getting that stretch. So it actually helps. And same with pull-ups. I found myself, if I kind of control down, don't pause, but just like you just get that little bit of a kind of ping and it potentiates the next rep. Um, yes. So no, I, th- I really like those takeaway points. Um, I don't know if we, we probably don't have quite enough time to go deep into uh, metabolic damage, uh, not metabolic damage, uh, metabolic stress. But I would also like to touch on potentially other aspects of the ways of varying our training or hypertrophy training. And one way we've seen people, I think, is becoming more and more prevalent is use of bands. I don't know if I, I think I've, I've seen Mike training a fair amount. I've never really seen you using a band. Uh, I don't know if Menno, you use bands with any of your programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a lot. Um, I use uh, basically whenever a trainee has bands, uh, one of my clients, then uh, I use them. Like there's almost always an exercise that can benefit from them. Um, I'm, a, I'm very big into uh, equating strength and resistance curves. So your strength curve should roughly equate to the resistance curve of the exercise so that you don't have very obvious sticking points and you're actually overloading uh, the exercise across its entire range of motion. Uh, and more importantly, overloading the muscle under as large a portion of its length as possible. So when you can use bands on the bench press, um, like there are some practical issues sometimes. Overhead press, it could work, but in practice, it's just very awkward. Uh, squats, I'm a big proponent. Uh, it really helps uh, reduce uh, back pain. Most people really like it, chains and the bands and the squats. Um, Deadlifts and Romanian deadlifts, it can work. Uh, it really shifts the emphasis a bit. So I don't really like it for women because you're adding vertical force and not uh, horizontal. So for women, I like often that are focused on their glutes. I like more American style deadlifts and Romanian deadlifts where you really push the hips through. The bands change not just the um, how much tension there is across the movement, but it actually alters which muscles are more activated a lot. So um, with bands, deadlifts become a lot more uh, trap dominant. Uh, than otherwise and um, that's why I often don't use them for women but I do like them uh, for men Um, but in in general it's um, I I see little downside basically uh, other than the setup time which can be uh, an issue if people are time restricted uh, and a lot of potential gains so there's a lot of research showing that bands improve uh, rate of force development and uh, strength development not so consistently but overall definitely and a meta-analysis shows it as well uh, muscle growth not as much research on but again if it at least it will help with strength uh, rate of force development and that may in the long run aid muscle growth so um, i'm a big proponent of uh, accommodating resistance whenever uh, i can use it Cool. Very interesting. Um, Mike, have you any thoughts on kind of bands and um, on what Menno said there? Yeah, I think a lot. Of, some exercises are really con- the bands are really conducive to helping them match their resistance curve to the strength curve. Um, some exercises are not. I'm also a big fan of the loaded stretch. I think it's a valuable part of the hypertrophy uh, in a stimulus, and I think that if you overuse band tension that you end up having to use so little weight that the loaded stretch is meh, and then you have a lot of lockout, which could have just, I don't know, done partials or something. So um, I think bands are good if they are limited to relatively lower band tension. I think when you start generating hundreds of kilos of band tension, a la west side, you're, not, you're training for equipped powerlifting at that point. Um, I think there are, there are definitely some exercises uh, in which band tension is a really good idea. Um, uh, various kinds of tricep extensions are almost ideally suited to that because of strength curve um, 
stuff. I think that um, if you do some upright rows and you really want to target the delts, a lower bar weight and some band tension on a Smith machine or something can really let you feel the side delts like you never really felt in upright rows before because you can't just ride the momentum of the road to the top and be like, man, I did it. And they're like, all right, how are the side delts? Like, I don't know. I mostly use my biceps to get up there. But if the incremental load gets higher and higher, you will have to pull your elbows up at the top and really feel it. So I think leg presses are another one. People like some band tension. There's a lot of it, you know, just at the bottom, it's really hard. But then the rest of the rep is like super fucking easy. Um, so I think there's definitely some opportunities. Like Menno said, I just play a little bit more on the conservative side of the setup time and the setup consistency too. You know, if someone has a home gym or a dependable gym and they don't travel much and they want to progressively overload uh, with with very good uh, sort of tracking, then and if they have their own bands and they have a good setup, then great. But if like you have like two pairs of bands at the gym and some cocksuckers using them when you get in and your machine is taken normally and you have to set it up on another one, like who the fuck does that? Also, I've seen people try to do bands with like dumbbell bench press and incline press, and I just think that's the most gigantic fucking waste of time trying to kill yourself. It's just trying to find ways to kill yourself in the gym. Uh, also when people run out of dumbbell press weight and they have their training partner hold another dumbbell right on top of the dumbbell setup. So that, yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that. Mm. That's just like, you should have just done barbell presses. You fucking idiot. Um, and it's always half reps anyway, but you know, we're getting off. So some, sometimes I feel like people are using bands with no foresight or intelligence. They just think there's some kind of cool little trip. Like this is actually very prevalent in, in training is thinking that things have an almost potion like magical quality to them that things are universally just an addition of good. So like, uh, you know, paprika is a good spice, right? But you don't add it into chocolate cake thinking of all, oh, but with paprika, it'll be better. Like, oh, what do you think? Do you use paprika today? Like, yeah, sure, great. You know, make a macaroni and cheese, fucking paprika, right? You use it in its kind of dishes that you're supposed to use it with other spices. So bands are to be used intelligently in places where you plan to use them in places that are effective. I think some people are like curls today and, and the bros like, yeah, what about with bands? And it's like, oh, fuck yeah, that'll fuck us up. Like, well, if it fucks you up so well, why don't you use it all the time? Well, I don't know. Like, of course you don't know. You don't fucking think about a goddamn thing. Sorry, bro, rant. <laughs> no, uh, great. I actually, the only question I've got, I guess, is out of my own personal interest. I know, I don't think I've ever seen you use bands. I'd be interested to think whether you think you're missing, if people are missing out on anything or if it's just a tool variation. I think you can get away with designing your program in other ways that you do not require the use of bands. But I think that if you have uh, bands to use, and especially if you're low on variance, uh, if you train in a garage gym with just a power rack, I think bands are starting to look really, really, really good idea to increase the variation and hit parts of the strength curve, parts of the muscle that you normally wouldn't hit. You know, if you have a hack squat and you have a leg press, you have a regular squat, you might not need bands to get optimal development or something close to it. But if you have just a power rack, you're going to need all kinds of uh, ways to vary the training, to alter strength curves, to basically create different exercises. Because now you have two exercises. You have squat and you have banded squat at the very least, uh, which is a very, very different movement. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't think I'm missing out on a ton, potentially later in my career when I'm all fucked up from doing regular weights and I still want to grow, I might use some band stuff. Uh, I'm always trying to save, I'm just trying to grow from as little technological, uh, stuff as possible, as little variation as possible so that I can save it for when I'm all fucked up and I can't squat and bench and deadlift anymore. So, uh, so yeah, I think, you know, I, I just, um, just going back to that earlier point, if I came up to Menno at a gym and he was using bands my question would be why are you using those he'd have a really good answer 
So just be like Menno and have a good answer. Because if I come up to you at a gym and you're using bands, like, why are you using those? Because, you know, fucking, like, you know, like, force curve or whatever. And shut the fuck up. Like, you're just using shit to say you're using shit and you have no plan. And a lot of people use bands one workout and it won't the next. And, you know, that the whole progression goes out the window, et cetera. Cool. I don't know if you any um, response to that, Menno, or um, I, d- I don't know if you guys have time. Menno could go over just his favorite exercises that he uses that on, because if you use them fairly regularly sure. in your programming. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure. Yeah, I agree with everything uh, Mike said. It's really important to get the band tension just right. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're solving the problem with one sticking point and you're just creating a new one further up movement. So, and then there's no point whatsoever. Uh, no pun intended. So, uh, I think that's really important setup as well. Um, uh, you need a constant setup, otherwise it's just a new exercise every time you train. Um, uh, for the record, I often cannot use bands myself because I, I travel a lot. Um, most gyms don't have bands, um, and I only have uh, one band because I everything is in literally two suitcases. Um, so I often cannot use them myself, but if I am in a location for at least a month where I'll have them, then um, and or if I have clients in such a scenario, uh, I really love bands for the bench press or the squats. Those are probably the exercises I use it most often um, because it reduces injury risk a lot, in my experience. Right, so shoulder injury risk in the bench press, way lower with bands. And um, knee injury risk, um, and especially back injury risk, seems to be lower uh, with squats. And um, yeah, those are definitely the ones I use it most often. Uh, incline press, uh, I also like it. Um, some machines you can actually use bands uh, quite well with uh, if you're a bit creative. Um, but good machines have a good resistance curve already, so they don't need them. Um, yeah, there aren't really any super exercises where I'd say like, there you really need the bands. Oh, one there's. One thing that's actually good to mention, I'm not a fan of using bands for pull-ups at all because it actually, um, it's sort of the opposite of what you want to do with the resistance curve. And you can get someone really strong at um, pull-ups with bands or chin-ups or women often, and they still can't do shit with regular chin-ups or pull-ups because it's a completely different exercise. It doesn't feel at all like a normal chin or pull-up. So I'm a much bigger fan of uh, negatives, partials, uh, half reps, um, than uh, using uh, uh, bands. I've not seen good results with that really. I mean, it can work for sure. Uh, it's one way to uh, implement progressive overload if someone's not strong enough for full chin or pull-ups, but uh, I just, I don't think they're optimal. I guess bands are generally used to help the portion that's the hardest, not to make the hardest portion even harder. Exactly, yeah. 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 I, I think uh, on, on exercises, for like vertical pulling movements. And I would actually say uh, horizontal pulling movements as well. Um, I love machines for the back that uh, make the bottom portion, whether it's here or here, harder and the top portion easier. Um, not only because it allows you to do more uh, effective reps, so to speak, with a, a strength curve that's better master resistance curve, but um, it also, and this is super fucking lame, but it lets me really fucking feel like mind-muscle bullshit at the bottom of a pull-down or at the top of a row, really arch and squeeze and squeeze the fuck out of it and then get that eccentric damage pulling real bullshit and then squeeze again. I hate it when it's the other way around. You get to the bottom of a row and you're like, mm-hmm, I can do this forever. And you get to the top and you get to here and you're like, Ugh! 
and they're like, how'd you feel that in your lats? I'm like, I didn't feel that anywhere except for my fucking forearms and biceps. Fuck this. Right. But the other way around is just this miraculous back pumping disaster where you get off a machine after five sets and you're like, I can't, I can't move my backs go. Where's my back? And you can't wash your own armpits. And shit. Sweet. <laughs> but yeah, but like Matt was saying, bands with pull-ups literally do the opposite. They do the, the wrong kind. So you can, you know, the, the top's already easy. Who gives a shit? And then the bottom's now, you know, like it's just, a, it's a, it lets you do, it lets you get the illusion that you can do a whole lot of pull-ups and then the band comes off and you're like, Bleh! So how are you doing? You're like, I don't know. Usually there's a band for this part. You're like, well, there's your problem. So I think bands can be used to help people do pull-ups in the context of a progressive plan to make their back stronger through pull-downs, assisted pull-ups and rows to make it bigger, right? To support later strength and for them to lose some fat, which a lot of times helps a lot. Weight loss, fat loss helps a lot. And that's probably the number one reason people usually people can't do pull-ups is the strength to body weight ratio sucks. Uh, and also in that progression towards the end, you can use some very light bands to, to get like sets of 10 or 12 pull-ups with bands in. Then you might be able to do like sets of five with regular pull-ups. But if you're like, I did a set of five with a band, am I ready to do regular pull-ups? Like, no, you're ready to do a single maybe. So I think there's just this big chasm there people don't see. Brilliant. Now, I think uh, unless you guys have any other kind of variations or nuanced ways of changing exercises, we can probably call that a good day. Um, I think that was a great kind of chat between the two of you. And I think there was many practical takeaways for the listeners. Sure. Yep. Yep. I just like, um, I just, uh, just trying to summarize shit lately because I feel like we all rant about a ton of shit and then people like watch it and they're like, Oh, okay. I learned uh, something, I guess. I just want just public service announcement. Don't get super caught up in the variations of the details that folks are doing. Like I'll do a squat and people are like, Dr. Mike, why do you tilt your hips like this versus like that? And I'm like, Jesus Christ, who gives a shit? It is my backgrounding. No. Am I hitting depth? Yes. Well, there's all kinds of ways to squat after you do that at a foot position. And, uh, the eccentric control, like I noticed you're doing three second eccentrics, but you're not pausing at the bottom. What's up with that? There's nothing fucking up with that. It's just something I chose. So whatever way you choose to train that doesn't violate any of the general principles and any of the stuff men and I talk about, pick that, dope it out for a couple of months, let it piss away its variation, change it up to another effective way, do that for a couple of months. That's how you improve. There's no fucking magic to any of this shit. There's people think, okay, so I noticed that you pause, seem to pause for two seconds on shoulder presses, but for one second on bench press. What's up with that? There's never an answer to that that's going to be like there's something up with that. Not in hypertrophy training. In strength training, people have techniques set up, so blah, blah, blah. But in hypertrophy training, just get in safely and intelligently and in a normalized way, similar to session to session, get the work done. And if you're thinking too much about any of that shit within there, you're just literally pissing away your time. Like, I just, I swear to God, like the people I coach don't lift anything like I do, like in actual lifting, they like take their technique looks a little different. They'll use all different pauses. You'd be like, Dr. Mike, why do you have your lifter doing that? Because I don't tell them to do that or not. I just say 10 reps in the squat, pause or not, <laughs> control eccentric or not, like slow control or not. And after that, they just do it how they do it. So I think a lot of that, Menno, can you rant on that with me, please? There's over-obsession with details. It just go nowhere. Sure, yeah. It's a bit of a different topic, but uh, I think over-cueing is something that uh, coaches, uh, also coaches, but individuals as well, are 
um, often guilty of. Like they try, um, you see with PTs in the gym a lot, like they, they're next to someone. And, it, and interestingly, you're in Portugal and uh, it's actually the worst. It's like they're, they're making a statue of art and they're like, and the elbow position should just be a little <laughs> bit more like that. And you're like, you're doing dumbbell rows with 10 pounds. It doesn't matter how you do it. It's it's not enough weight in any way you do it. So, and it's uh, it's, it's really bad. You should you should see it. But um, it's the only country I've seen this. Um, but in general, like with the squat, um, like Mike said, there are a few general principles you want to uphold to in the squat, and then uh, the rest is often very um, much dictated by someone's uh, individual anthropometry. And it will look different for anyone. And there are a lot of different ways, even within a given individual, you can squat very effectively. So I think um, this is also what I, I'll try to do. Use the minimal amount of use you can get someone to perform an exercise well uh, and also rely a lot on someone's intuitive um, way they perform an exercise because the human motor cortex is actually pretty damn efficient. If you look at um, how much space it occupies in the brain, how effective it is, how we can produce movement. I mean, try throwing a ball in a, a, and, um, in a bin over there or something. That movement, you can do it intuitively. I mean, the amount of muscle coordination and the exact muscles involved and everything, there, there's no way even a computer cannot do it yet. So uh, look at what we can do with robots. You know how hard it is to make a robot walk, just a regular walk? It's insanely difficult. And that just illustrates how extremely effective our motor cortex is. So I often use the analogy, if you're, you're trying to overcue, it's, it's a bit like overclocking the motherboard of your computer with a kitchen knife. It's a really rudimentary method to mess with an extremely um, evolved system. So yeah, don't overcue. Real quick, um, mm -hmm. just to get your rant on this, uh, it's a little off topic, but if I don't know if Steve wants to include it or not, what do you think of posture obsession in the PT oh. community? Give it to me, Meadow. I want it. I want it. Yeah, I think... That's definitely a different topic. Uh, probably not one for this one, but um, um, just give me a, just give me a taste. Yeah, I think posture obsession is, is huge. I mean, there are so many issues with it. Um, for one, there's no such thing as ideal posture. That is a complete myth. Uh, I mean, like anterior tilt. If you look at anterior tilt, it's like oh, I have anterior tilt. It's a big problem. I need to fix this. And if you look at the research. Most people have anterior tilt. It's just a matter of degree. It's actually, I think it's like 60% of the population has a few degrees of anterior tilt. And some people have extremely large anterior tilt and it doesn't have to be pathological. I think it's a, a very sad state of affairs that as human beings, we think of, um, it's a basically Nazi thinking, right? That there's this ideal structure of the human body that we're supposed to have. And if you do not have that structure, that's a problem. Like what's a problem? Pain is a problem. Dysfunction is a problem. Not having that kind of posture is not a problem if it doesn't have any symptoms associated with it. It can actually be beneficial. Like, you know, some runners, they have extreme post or anterior pelvic tilt. And it actually is extremely biomechanically advantageous for sprinting. So their, you know, weird off uh, non-optimal posture actually turns out to be the uh, reason they win Olympic medals. So, um, yeah, that's, that's one thing uh, to share that is it really a problem. Then can you correct it? Like with many things in, in physiotherapy, it's if 
many physiotherapists have clients that do not even lift, most of their clients. So the solution, am I still there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. So the, the solution is often you get them to exercise. That problem does not occur in strength trainees and especially not for overuse injuries, which is the vast majority of injuries for most serious trainees that have good exercise technique. So all of these things like muscle balance and trying to correct, uh, doing more external rotation work and ever, uh, it's often just very silly if you think about it. Like you have a, a powerlifting uh, medal winner, uh, comes to a physiotherapist, physiotherapist is like, yeah, you have uh, weak, weak back muscles. Are, are you serious? Like, you often you cannot correct it. If you can't correct it, um, it's often because there's something like really wrong with your program, like muscle balance and stuff that, that becomes an issue if you're like, you're, for years you're training like a complete bro and not doing back work. But if you are training all your muscle groups, then it's very unlikely you have such a strong muscle imbalance. It's actually pulling your posture out of, uh, out of whack. Um, so yeah. That, that's just the tip of the iceberg on the amount of issues I have with the claims people make about posture. Yeah. I like the, the one, one claim that always just, it's just immediately apparent that it's fucked up is like, you know, you should sit up straighter. It's better for your back. I'm like, mm -hmm. so the act of actively trying to sit up in an uncomfortable way requires the constant activation of a lot of musculature. Like, mm -hmm. you don't see that as a problem for chronic muscular fatigue and then actual pain. Like, like, okay, sweet. I can tell you thought that through a lot. Great. You know, like, how about this? Sit in a way that doesn't hurt you and is really comfortable. Look, I just solved the sitting crisis. Isn't that insane? Do, where's my Nobel Prize in physiology or whatever? It's, but you, apparently the way, like, I literally had people, like, at seminars be like, Dr. Mike, I noticed the way you were sitting. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and, like, what do you think about posture? I'm like, go fuck yourself. Like, I was comfortable. And they're like, well, you know, you should sit. Like, yeah, like, great. I weigh 100 and 10 kilos i'm gonna sit look at my chest up the entire time i don't know how long can you guys sit with like your british student desk style with your chest i can sit like that for 30 seconds and i'm like my fucking back is cramping fuck you but apparently it's some it's almost like a morality to posture like people see someone walking with like a slightly you know lordotic upper back and, and, and they'll be like oh look at that person like oh wow yeah he's a bad person like fuck you also that person's set up to deadlift sweet anytime i see someone with like a lower back lordosis and oh sorry i i a kyphotic uh upper back and like longer arms i'm like oh my god get that person a barbell amazing yeah, it reminds me of the, like, it's like a naturalistic fallacy type thing where it's like, oh, it's, that's how we should be. Yeah. Um, I think it's yeah. just, uh, the only thing I can say is a personal bias is I think good posture does look better in some ways. So like sure. if you're a presenter with good posture, generally he comes across a bit better or she. But, but if it takes you heaven and earth to keep reminding yourself to stand up maximally straight all the time, are you really trying to impress people all the time? You know what I mean? Like you go into the store riding your bike, like who gives a shit? Like, yeah, when you give it a presentation, like, yeah, you want to like, oh, I'll go manly and shit. But it gets to a point where it's just, it's, it's absurd and you don't even know why you're doing it. You're like, well, I, I have to go like this. Like, okay, hey, like if you feel, you know, so, so inclined to consistently stick out your chest, great. But um, it's, it, again, that, that sort of magical thinking there of thinking like, man, there's some real good reason why we need like this perfect posture. Um, and, you know, I don't know, Meno, do you know who, um, what the hell is like a functional patterns? Do you guys know functional patterns on Instagram and stuff like that? Is a guy who coaches, coaches, helps uh, people in the United States. Uh, was he, so everything he does is with either bands 
or BOSU balls or rotational movements. He calls athletes that do sagittal plane movements like limited. And um, he says he coaches uh, uh, MMA guys and fighters. And I've actually challenged him to a, an MMA match before we, he get to, he get to start either with a choke in or with mounting me. And I would still probably murder him. He, he didn't take the chance. He just accused me of steroid use and uh, didn't take the challenge. But this is a person who's obsessed with posture and they like, they literally like they're in a little group. They like have a picture of a power lifter just standing there and they just ridicule them for how terrible their posture is. And you look at those people that are ridiculing, they weigh like 70 kilos and they're like decrepit looking, but they're like this. And you're like, wow, wow, you're just at the height of human achievement here. It's a, but, but they really do believe that just posture is everything. And I think like uh, Meno mentioned, it starts in that sort of like bastardization of PT kind of crowd where you're taught for several years to diagnose everything as a disease. And then all of a sudden everything is a disease. So you can just fix everything or whatever. No, definitely. I don't know if you guys have time. This only re- reminds me of a kind of perfect form. And I know, Mike, you've talked about perfect form before, and you're kind of quite a stickler for having kind of good form on exercises. I don't know if men or you have different thoughts or you're very much along the same lines, like you should have kind of that, that almost timeless form where you're using full range of motion, or do you ever like a bit of kind of momentum or swinging uh, to be involved? Yeah. Perfect form um, is technique that satisfies all the, the principles you're aiming to achieve, I think. So it's usually a range of possible variations. Like we talked about for a squat, there isn't one way. You can sit a little bit more back. You can have you know, your, your feet out uh, probably anywhere from like 5 to 45 degrees. If you have a good structure for squatting, then that whole range might work for you. And... Um, Range of motion, I am a very big stickler with. I never let clients sacrifice range of perform more weights because that is a slippery slope that just leads to ego lifting. And at the end of the three months later, you're like, oh, actually, if I'm strict with my range of motion, I haven't progressed in strength at all. So <laughs> uh, it really doesn't work. And um, tempo, I'm not, I'm not too strict with. Um, but if you see that uh, they're, they're starting to dive bomb and stuff, then yeah. Um, it, it's a what problem. About momentum, so, you know? What about momentum? Uh, I like momentum when it's useful and generated by body parts that you're targeting. So for like a lateral race, uh, I'm a big fan of momentum if you're using a dumbbell at least. So definitely use some momentum to get the weight up because it's with the strength resistance curve matching. It's basically a form of uh, biomechanical accommodating resistance. Um, but if you're using... Um, momentum with other body parts, you know, like your, your biceps curls look like a reverse clean, then um, it, it, it's taking away from the stimulus of the biceps. So, and it's not really going to stimulate muscle growth in the hips or anything. So in that case, it's, it's cheating. So it, it really depends on the exercise. Um, and, you know, going by client reports, I, I, I'd say I'm a stickler for, uh, for perfect form, but perfect form within a certain range, you know, ticking all the that I want to take. Great. No, I think um, from what I know, uh, Mike's going to be very much along the same page. No comment. Agreed. Perfect. 
Um, I don't know if you guys want to wrap it up there. I know I've kept you for over an hour now. Um, and I think we've touched on some amazing points. I think the listeners are going to really enjoy. And I really hope Mike's point in terms of kind of don't get caught up in the minutia um, and really look at the overall kind of grounding principles and take those into consideration because we're all individuals. We're all very different. Um, and that's why we auto-regulate things. And these are practices are coming out, such as kind of auto-regulating rest periods and stuff like that. So, no, thank you, guys. Brilliant talk. Yeah, I'll just add one more super quick thing with posture. Um, it's, it's again a different topic, but uh, I guess this podcast is going to be a bit of a mix of everything. The idea that the pencil test, that is the stupidest thing ever. That the idea that you have to, if you hold two pencils, they should be pointing straight ahead, both, and otherwise you have internally rotated shoulders. I mean, have these people ever done this test on a lot of people? That, that doesn't work for the vast majority of people. It's just, it actually, I'd say that the average, it's like you have to hold two pencils and the idea is that they have to point straight. So your arms would have to be like, like this. And normally they're, you know, they're with like this. So like they're, you have your arms beside your body, you're holding two pencils, like in the- Oh, fuck. Try it. They're gonna be, you're gonna have major internal rotations. Super bad posture. Who gives a shit where they point? Yeah, well, the idea is that it should be in, well, it's actually external rotation, uh, but it, the neutral should be straightforward is the idea, which is based on absolutely nothing. So it's just idea, what is neutral? Yeah, straightforward, right? So that it should be straightforward. <laughs> and it doesn't work with anyone, like no one. Like there's maybe a few people that, that walk like, like this, right? And <laughs> yeah. they may have that posture. That's yeah. quite hilarious. I'll only say it, it was quite hilarious because that used to be one of my tests I had in when I was a first as a PT. It used to be a test that I'd give um, people coming into the gym was the pencil test with the hands and then also feet. How would they just naturally stand? Like were they pointed out or in or where they were? Uh, but obviously since learning that it's not such an issue, which is actually a load off a load of people's minds, I think. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, like yeah, the- I, I remember I had that test and that. I- I had it and I'm like, oh damn, I'm so internally rotated. <laughs> I did all this external rotation work or whatever. And guess what? Pencil test result didn't change for one bit. You should have just done more external rotation stuff. <laughs> I like to I like to do those tests, but conclude things that people aren't prepared to hear. Like I like take their limb measurements and which way their toes point, and I just do some math and they're like, okay, what do you think? I'm like, it says here you're morally bankrupt. And they're like, Well, I, I could have told you that, you know, I didn't need a test. Hmm. That would be really sweet, huh? Anthropometrical assessment of moral character is Rattel et al. 2019. Wait for that article. It's going to be amazing. Perfect. And with that, I'll, I'll call it a day because otherwise I will keep here, you here forever. <laughs> so uh, as always, thank you guys massively for coming on the show and thank you to all the listeners for staying tuned. We will talk to you soon.